Good evening to you. First Chronicles chapter one this evening. And if you're with us this morning without a Bible or this evening without a Bible, you're definitely going to want to wave to one of these men coming up the aisles with Bibles because you'll be probably completely lost without a Bible this evening. So get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And if if you don't own a Bible and uh, then take that Bible and receive it as a gift from the Lord and take it home and begin to read it and watch what the Lord does in your life uh, through it. First Chronicles, uh, the book of First Chronicles, beginning in chapter one. I think that uh, perhaps many of us have uh, through the years heard of the uh, somewhat uh, horror story of people that have picked up the Bible with the intention of reading it from Genesis to Revelation, from front to back, beginning to end. And as they begin to tear into uh, the Bible from the book of Genesis, they make their way uh, very, very uh, healthily and excitedly through the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And then they get to chapter five uh, and they hit the first genealogy of the Bible or, or chapter four of, of the book of Genesis. And it's full of all of the begats and all of the begottens and all of this. And typically when a person hits that, very often they'll say that they it, it confirms what in their mind is a suspicion concerning the Bible. And that is that it's either hopelessly boring or it's just hopelessly complex, just impossible to understand. And so. One chapter be interesting to know from the perspective of heaven, how many great commitments to read the Bible from one end to the other has been torpedoed by that one chapter in Genesis. People give up. Well, we can only imagine if they had continued on and made it all the way to first Chronicles and then discovered that this book begins with nine chapters of, of genealogies, not just one chapter of genealogies. Now, uh, admittedly, first and second chronicles can present a little bit of a challenge to us when we read it, and especially for the first time. And uh, not just people that are brand new to the Bible, but to all readers of the Bible. And it creates a little bit of a challenge for us. Uh, for three particular reasons. Number one, again, the first nine chapters of the book are genealogies, which to the average Western reader is just a bunch of names. There are some uh, Americans or Westerners that are really super into genealogies, but comparative, compared to uh, the Middle East or compared to Asia, it's a relatively small number because we're mostly concerned with ourselves. <laughs> So pretty focused on that takes a lot of our time. And so uh, we don't really care what came before us, except to know for health reasons, uh, you know, the first, second or third generation within within us. But that's always for kind of a selfish reason as well. And so this they we hit this book and we just are put off sometimes by what we consider just a long list of useless names. The second challenge is that these are very long books. And then the third challenge is most people wouldn't mind the fact that the books are long, except that it appears that it's just a mere repetition of what they had just read in first and second Samuel and first and second Kings. So it appears to just be this rehash 
of something that they have just read. But the interesting thing about First and Second Chronicles is that it is very, very different, at least in its purpose and very much in its content, from First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings were was written to the Jews when they went into the Babylonian captivity because of their sin. That section of Jewish history that occurred before the Babylonian captivity is those Jews and that uh, Jewish history is known as pre-exilic. That is the portion of Israel's history. If you ever come into across that term, it refers to the portion of Israel's history that occurred prior to their exile 70 years in Babylon. Then there is the history of the Jews that is called post-exilic, that is, their history after the Babylonian captivity. First and Second Kings is written to pre-exilic uh, Jews. And basically what it was was a record for the Jews who are now sitting in captivity in Babylon, and it is God's record to them of how they ended up there. The great beginning they had, the great advantages that they had, the great opportunities that they had, but how they had frittered all of that away and the reasons why they had lost all of that opportunity and were in bondage. That was the purpose of First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles is written now to the post-exilic group. Here is a group of Jews who have been born and raised in Babylon. They've never set foot in Israel. They don't know anything uh, on a first-hand basis about its terrain, how much they know about their spiritual heritage, these things. A lot of it, you know, nobody nobody really knows. They live in this this uh, just this dominant culture of the Babylonians. And so God takes and he puts a genealogy together for them and a history together for them to remind them of two things. Number one, they got a lot of great people in their past. Now, when you are in, among the Jewish people, if you were sitting in captivity among the Babylonians, your whole mind would be dominated by all of the black sheep of the family that got you into that place. And they probably sat there and, you know, rude the day that these men led us into this place and we allowed it to be so. And, 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 and that entire history that, that went on and had to figure that this is the end of it, you know, for us. And God comes in and he reminds these that have been raised in Babylon, you come from a long line of spiritual heroes, great people. You come from the lineage of Abraham, from the lineage of Isaac, from Jacob, from David, from Samuel, so forth. The second reason that he gives them this genealogy and this history is to remind them of their spiritual purpose. This Babylonian captivity was a very severe low point in their history. And God comes along and he gives them this history in order to remind them, hey, we've been in tough places before with you people. <laughs> we've been through a 400-year period called the Judges, where I'd pull your, pull your 
Out of the fire, whatever, I'm trying to get the sanctified version of that. I saved you over and over again, and you disregarded it, and you went and put yourself into bondage again, and this and that. So we've been through some difficult times where your disobedience has put you in a place where it looked like if you were serving any other God other than me, he'd have been through with you. But that's not the God that you're serving. And so it was an encouragement to them to remind them of their spiritual, spiritual heritage as Jews. And the great heritage of the Jews is not just to be descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though that has a great blessing. As Paul brings out in the New Testament, the two greatest things that the Jews have done in human history among a long list of great things is that they have God used them to provide the world with the Hebrew scriptures. And number two, God used the Jewish people to bring our Savior into the world. But at the time that this First Chronicles is written, there's no Savior in the world yet. And so God is communicating to that generation of people that you come from a long spiritual history. And to your race and to you as a people Tremendous expectations are attached to you in the in the birth of the Messiah into the world. And now, despite this terrible Babylonian captivity, you need to step up now and continue that lineage until that Messiah is born into the world. It was a great this would be a great encouragement to them. Others have stepped up. Not everyone in your history is a hero, but you've got heroes enough. And now they're going to be need to be some in your generation. They're going to step up in order for the savior of the world, Jesus, to be born from your bloodline into this world. And that would have been a great encouragement to them. It's interesting that even as we look at the history that is contained in First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, as in comparison to Samuel and, and Kings, they're not, it's not identical history. God is very, very selective. He leaves an awful lot out in First and Second Chronicles that He put in the other books. He adds things in First and Second Chronicles that He didn't say there, and it's all absolutely by design. There is virtually nothing. In First Chronicles, that speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel and their failure to have even one single king that uh, would walk obedient to the Lord. It was a terrible history. There was no need to repeat the history. There was nothing else to be learned from the history. First and Second Kings had exhausted the lessons of that particular history, and that is, this is where disobedience to my word ends. It ends in captivity among the Gentiles. So there was no need now to take this generation and lay that lesson on them, because it's a different generation. This generation needed encouragement. So sometimes you... Um, People look and they at first and second chronicles and they say, well, boy, this and and they put David here and they put David in his best light. And there's no mention of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, the Hittite. And so somebody's being selective and right. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. This new generation didn't need to be encumbered with all of those things. Those weren't dangerous to them necessarily. 
Other things were dangerous to them. So when we hit, the reason I say all of this, when we hit repetition of history in the books of First and Second Chronicles, it means that the truth that is contained there is important to all generations. Pre-exilic God's people, post-exilic God's people. And so it's like God's putting an exclamation point behind these things. And so we give it kind of our double attention now. All right. He's repeating himself. There must be a reason for this. I'm going to listen to him. Now, fascinating to me, you think about how um, terse, how concise and lean the biblical account is of so much of what Jesus did, so much of the book of Acts. I wouldn't mind if the book of Acts constituted a five-volume set. But if God included everything, you know, and obviously we don't need it for the revelation that we need right now, or the Bible would be bigger than it is, but we'd all be driving U-Hauls to church and bringing in these gigantic Bibles by ox or something. So... When the Lord invests nine chapters in this series of genealogies, it must be very, very important to him. And so it's important to us. Now, one of the reasons that he does the genealogies is you can't write a more lean, concise thousands of years history of man than by genealogy. It's the fastest way you can give a history, especially if your audience is probably what this audience was here among the Jews. And that is even in their Babylonian captivity, familiar with their history. When you mention Adam, you don't have to go three chapters to describe Adam when you're familiar with the Bible already. Just his name pulls up the whole picture. You mention Noah, you mention Abraham, you mention David. These people become Our friends, they're part of our family that we'll one day see in heaven. And so you can just move through thousands of years of history just like this. I think in the first handful of verses of chapter one, which we will get to tonight, in the first few verses, you cover 1500 years. You almost have to stop and take a breath. You've moved so quickly. But the idea was these weren't just names on a page to these readers, they represented human beings, part of their bloodline, and and they knew the story that was associated with them. And so the that's how they would view these names and um, and 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 pull the whole thing up uh, in their minds by uh, the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this is the, the difference between the books. And it gives us a little bit of a bird's eye view, you know, before we. Uh, as we head into it and spend the coming weeks. And I won't go uh, into depth related to all of these events that we've uh, covered, uh, you know, through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I'll refer you to the tapes of the teachings related to it and, uh, um, and, and just kind of do an overview, as much of an overview as I can do. But I'm going to be committed to this. This is between the Lord and I. Now, the genealogy is fascinating, and we'll just do one more point of introduction before we get into it. The genealogy begins very, very broad. And the further we go into the genealogy, 
it narrows down and it narrows down and it narrows down. It begins with the biggest bloodline in human history. It begins with Adam. Everybody's included in Adam. Amazing to realize the blood that flows in your veins, no matter what our race is, no matter what our background is, what our culture, whatever, every human being in this world has blood from Adam and Eve coursing inside of our bodies. So it begins as broad as it can be, and then it begins to narrow down. Narrows uh, down to Abraham, then it narrows down to Isaac, then it narrows down to Jacob, then it narrows down to David. And why does it do that? Because each one of those people God had prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of that bloodline. It is following the most important bloodline in history, the bloodline that would bring our Savior into the world. And so it's fascinating to watch uh, as, as that happens and as we uh, read that and make our, uh, our, make our way through it. So we begin now in chapter 1, verse 1, with Adam. Now that's the biggest bloodline again, as I said. Everybody's included in that uh, uh, bloodline. Every one of us is a descendant of Adam and a descendant of Eve. Now, if you're the writer of the book of First Chronicles and you want to be an encouragement to God's people that there's hope after a big mess up, you can hardly begin at a better place than Adam. God is able to overrule the very fall of Adam and Eve in the garden for his purposes and his plan of salvation. And so that name would have been an encouragement to them. There's hope on the other side of failure in our lives and in our, our personal history as well as the national history of, of the Jews. And so he begins with Adam. I think that uh, sometimes it's it very easy for someone to, you know, look at the Bible. And of course, we believe as Christians and believers in the Bible that all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve and come from their fall in that ancient garden. But I think it's a fair question for someone that's unfamiliar with the Bible to say, how in the world uh, do I know what physical proof do I have that I am a descendant of that ancient Adam as the Bible declares? And Paul, the apostle, by the spirit of God, gives a simple four-word answer in writing to the church at Corinth. He said, in Adam, all die. The fact that we die, the fact that everybody dies, no matter what race, whatever background, whatever, 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 all of the hyphenated divisions of mankind, the fact that we die and death is before us, apart from a faith in Christ, proves, puts a rope right around my ankle, and it goes back through thousands of years of history, and it ties me right into that ancient garden. In Adam, all died. Death is the evidence of the fact that we're all descendants of Adam and Eve because death is a consequence of that fall. Somebody else may ask, what evidence is there that I can look at other than the Bible itself? I don't want proof from the Bible. But what evidence is there that I can look at other than the Bible, to prove the Bible's description of the fall of man in that Garden of Eden. That man, the, 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 the fact that man is not something inferior, becoming something superior, as evolution teaches, but that the Bible's 
uh, uh, history related to us is true, that we began as something superior and we have become something inferior. And again, the evidence is as close as the inside of your body for our connection to that fall. And it's called conscience. And Paul wrote about it in writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. God has given each one of us a conscience, an intuitive knowledge, a knowledge that we're born with of right and wrong. That murder is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Not murdering is always right. Not stealing is always right. Not lying is always right. So we have this intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. It's worldwide. You don't have to teach it. You go to every tribe, kindred, tongue, nation in the world, and it's inside of us. The interesting thing about our conscience inside of ourselves is that our conscience is higher than the standard of our practice. Nobody lives up to their conscience. Nobody lives practically a life that is as high as the standard of their conscience. And what Paul says in the book of Romans is that testifies to the fact that our conscience is not something that came from us, but it is something that has come from God. It is God-given. It came from one who is higher than us. And so this, this broad gulf that exists every single day in our lives between what we know to be right and wrong and the life that we actually live, that gulf between those two places is like a neon light that is blinking to each one of us in this world, declaring, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. You once began as something superior. You have fallen from that something superior into an inferior condition. And so it, it's like, is we, one of the great things about becoming Walking with the Lord for a little while is you realize everything in the world testifies to the truthfulness of God's word. The blessings of obeying the curse that's on disobeying, how we're made, the whole thing. I mean, like we said this morning, only God could, only the creator could know us so well as, as he knows us and as he's provided, you know, for our salvation. And so all of this Evidence that ties all of us back to Adam. So here we are with Adam, and uh, we can all in this room say, all right, thus far we are included in the genealogy. After Adam, there was Seth, and then Enosh, uh, Canaan, uh, Mahalalel, uh, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, and then Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, again, we've covered you know, over a thousand years of history in just those verses. Amazing. It's interesting to realize that not only are each of us a descendant of Adam, but each of us is a descendant of Noah. Because Noah and his three sons and their wives, they were the group of the gene pool through which the rest of the world was repopulated following uh, the destruction uh, of life as a result of the flood. So every one of us is a descendant 
of one of these three sons of Noah. So I'm a descendant of Adam. Each of us is a descendant of Noah. Man, we are all man. I got you glued, don't I? Still, you're still personally invested in this. So you say, all right, which of these three sons do I come from? And he begins with the sons of Japheth uh, there in, in verse 5. It speaks of Gomer, modern-day Turkey, eastern Turkey. It speaks of Magog. That was an ancient a group of people that lived north of the Caucasus Mountains, modern-day Russia for us. Uh, Medai, which speaks of the Medes, located in eastern uh, ancient Assyria and uh, southwest of the Caspian Sea. We know it today as modern-day Iran. Then Javan, which is the name for the ancient uh, Hellenistic race. We know them today as the Greeks. And then Tubal. Uh, again, a tribe of people near the Caucasus Mountains uh, toward Russia. And then Tyrus is referred to and uh, seems to refer to a seafaring people located uh, on the Aegean Sea in northern Greece. Ashkenaz, uh, also in the area of the Black Sea. Uh, Diptha and uh, Riphath. Uh, located in northern Israel, Togarma, modern-day Turkey, uh, Elishah, modern-day Cyprus, uh, Tarshishah, uh, refers to the far east, uh, western end of the Mediterranean Sea, perhaps modern-day Spain, and then Kittim, which uh, is also a group of people that dwelt on Cyprus. Uh, uh, Rodanim is uh, probably lived in a portion of what we know as modern-day Greece, and so the conclusion related to all of this is it's believed that from Japheth came all of the Caucasian people of Europe and even northern Asia. So they descended from uh, Japheth. And so uh, uh, that is that that group of people of which I am one of those people. We descended from uh, Japheth. Now, and as quick as a blink, it's going to be over. Verse seven, that's it. We're gone. And uh, that's it. No mention of the Scottish <laughs> or the Irish. Tom, I don't know. Tom's half Scottish and half Irish, too. Sometimes people get upset, and I've, I've run into them through the years. I mean, they're really steamed at why God gives this preeminence to the Jews and why not to their particular nationality. And I don't know. I just, I'm not a patient listener sometimes. Sometimes I am. Most times I am. But I look at that and I think to myself, I don't care who he brought the Messiah into the world through. That's his choice. All I care about is he provided us with a Savior. So if he wanted to bring him from Timbuktu or Texas, well, maybe not Texas. I don't know about Texas. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me that... Here is the Scots and the Irish in Europe and all left behind in verse 7. Then he goes on and he talks about the sons of Ham. And Cush refers to, uh, in, in verse 8 it begins, modern-day southern Egypt, speaks of northern Ethiopia and also northern Sudan. 
Misraim refers to it's an ancient name for Egypt. Put is modern day Libya, North Africa, uh, Canaan, modern day portion of Israel, uh, Seba, northern Egypt, Havilah, northern Arabia, Sabta, which is uh, Arabia on the western shore of the Persian Gulf. So modern day Saudi Arabia, uh, Ra'amah is uh, again southern Arabia, uh, Sabdeka is southern Arabia, Sheba refers to southwest Arabia, Dedan, northern Arabia, and, and God makes mention there of a descendant of Cush by the name of Nimrod who became, uh, made quite a name for himself uh, in ancient history from that, that gene pool and, and led in the building of the tower of Babylon, a rebellion against God. And the descendants of Ham settled into Africa and perhaps some portions of Asia and the Orient. And so enjoy that if that's the background you come from, because you're going to be left in the dust uh, just like the Europeans and the others, because the focus is moving toward the Jews and toward the bloodline that's going to bring the Savior into the world. Then he moves on in verse 17 to the descendants of the uh, of Shem all the way to Abraham, and uh, he's mentioned last because that particular uh, gene pool is the most important. And so you have Elam, which is uh, the highlands uh, east of Babylonia, so refers to Persia, part of Iran, uh, Asher, uh, area of ancient Assyria, uh, uh, Arfaxad also referring to a portion of Assyria, Lud, also Assyria, uh, Aram uh, speaks of Syria and Mesopotamia and, and so forth on the names. It's interesting uh, to notice the name Eber that is mentioned there in verse 25, and it's believed that Eber is the name from which the term Hebrew comes from because it was first used of Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. And so... Uh, probably uh, the Hebrews descending from that. Then there's the mention of Eber's two sons, Peleg and Joktan. The descendants of Joktan are listed. Almost all of them lived in the Arabian Peninsula there in verse 20. And then most significantly there in verse 28, uh, the lineage of Shem brings us to Abraham, which is not only one of the greatest names in this genealogy, but Abraham is one of the greatest names in human history. Throughout all, all secular or religious history, Abraham is one of the most significant personages in all of uh, human history. And so God spoke to Abram uh, before he became Abraham. God changed his name, and he's just a pagan, just like everybody else. He was a pagan in Ur of the Chaldees, and God called upon Abraham, gave him a, a series of great promises, including uh, a, 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 the introduction of a covenant relationship with God that was based upon faith in the coming Messiah and the coming Savior, and a Savior that would come through his lineage. And so uh, Abraham had this promise. Now, Abraham, uh, his lineage begins there uh, also in verse 28, he's introduced in verse 27, then his lineage in earnest in, in verse 28. The sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. Now, we remember concerning Abraham back in Genesis that Abraham uh, brought children into the world through three different women. Uh, he brought Isaac, the, the, the child of promise, into the world through Sarah, his wife. And a great mistake that, that Sarah was involved in as well, uh, Ishmael came into the world 
by uh, him lying with Hagar, Sarah's uh, handmaiden. And then when uh, when Abraham died or Sarah died, Abraham then remarried a woman by the name of Keturah. She's mentioned in verse 32. He lived on for, I think, another 37 years after Sarah's death and proceeded to have six sons then with her. And so there's the listing of the descendants of Abraham. Sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. These are their genealogies. The firstborn of Ishmael was as they're listed there. And then the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine, the names that are, are also listed there. I think it's important, too, for us to realize as we watch the newspaper, I mean, watch the television or uh, computer screens or we read the newspapers, because the Middle East is always a hotbed. It's always an unstable uh, region. And so we can tend to think uh, that this hostility between the Jews and the Arabs has just been from day one forever and ever. But it hasn't been. They are blood relatives. They are cousins. The Arab people of the world today are descendants of Abraham, but through a different mother than the Jews came through in Isaac and through Sarah. But they're cousins. They, they share at least that much of the bloodline. Fascinating. We'll go, when we go to Israel, the guy that we always uh, <clears throat> you know, try to arrange to get is a man by the name of Naphtali, and he's a Jewish guide. And uh, the Arab vendors in Jerusalem, especially when we get to Jerusalem, they're very, very aggressive to sell their wares. And they're, <clears throat> they're trying to earn a living just like everybody else. But we're on a Bible tour. We're not on a souvenir tour. And uh, so uh, Naphtali's trying to navigate us through all of this. And, um, and, and then sometimes there'll be a little bit of a frustration that he's moving them through, moving us through there a little bit too quickly. And uh, so one of the Arab men will cry out to Naphtali, cousin, cousin, let him stay here a little bit and, and to buy and to sell. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, there's great hostility between the Jews and the Arabs today on a certainly on a national level. But there's the recognition also that they are all descendants of Abraham. And in a technical sense, uh, they are cousins way, way back uh, in the bloodline, all the way back to Abraham. Uh, they share that blood of, of Abraham. We're going to see that they share, uh, they share Abraham. Uh, some uh, Arabs share Abraham with the Jews and the Jews share Abraham with the Arabs. And then some Arabs share Isaac with uh, with the Jews and vice versa. But once you get to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, it's all Jews. And so, uh, you know, interesting, at least to know, I think. And so the genealogy uh, there of the sons of uh, of Abraham and when these uh, sons of Keturah listed there in verse 32, these uh, sons uh, born to Abraham late in his life, when he came to uh, die, he sent them all to the east, which is where they settled. That's the part of the world that they dominate to this day. He gave them great wealth individually. He gave the greatest portion of his wealth to Isaac, but he sent all of them to the east uh, to make a great name for themselves, which they certainly have done. But he kept Isaac in the land of promise, gave him the greater wealth because he did not want these other descendants 
um, competing with Isaac for the promises related to the Messiah that God had given to him for mankind. And so uh, here's this listing of Abraham. And again, you look at Abraham here as he's listed, and there's that realization, again, it would produce hope within people, the realization that none of your descendants, even the heroes of your uh, family tree, none of them were perfect. Abraham had his problems. He had his lapses of faith, though he's called the father of faith. That's the grace of God, the grace of God in our lives as well. And and so here, even though he had his failures and, and he fell short and he even put the bloodline in danger by <laughs> putting his wife into a harem twice. I mean, come on. Anyway, I don't want to get into it. We went through it uh, before. But um, uh, so Hope on the other side of all of this. Now, notice in verse 34, Abraham begot Isaac. And so here is the next narrowing down of the bloodline. The sons of Isaac were Esau and uh, uh, Israel. And the sons of Esau were Eliphaz, uh, uh, Reuel, uh, Jeush, Ja'alam, and Korah. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, uh, Zephi, Gatam, and Kenaz, and by Timnah, uh, 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 Timnah, Amalek. The sons of Ruel were Nahath, Zerah, uh, Shammah, and uh, Mizah. So uh, here in this uh, place we have Esau, who is introduced as, as also one of the sons uh, of Isaac, with Jacob, uh, Israel is the name of Jacob after he had wrestled with God there at the brook Jabbok. And so uh, the descendants of Esau are listed here. Uh, that those, his descendants are expanded on in verse 38 through 42. And then the kings of Edom are listed to the end of the chapter. The Edomites are, were descendants of Esau, and so they're listed. But now they're going to disappear because God didn't promise to bring the Messiah into the world through uh, Esau, but to bring him into the world uh, through uh, Jacob or Israel. So the narrowing down. And in that narrowing down, we get to chapter 2. And these are the sons of Israel slash Jacob. Reuben, recognize these as the 12 tribes of Israel. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And the sons of Judah, as he begins now to expand on each of these men that are listed here, their genealogy, he begins with uh, the tribe of Judah. Now, this is fascinating because you always would begin the genealogy of your sons with your oldest son, who for Jacob, it was Reuben. But Reuben went in and he had sexual intercourse with one of his father's concubine, which would not only be a no-no today, but it was like an off-the-graph no-no in the modesty of that ancient world. And so, as a result of that, the oldest son had a birthright. And the birthright is he would be given a double portion, twice as much physical wealth as the other brothers, and he would also be given the position of the spiritual head of the family. But because of his sin, he, uh, he loses his birthright 
And instead, the sons of Joseph then come in and kind of take his place. And Judah is elevated as uh, Jacob kind of prophesied concerning him on his deathbed. Jacob then takes the place of spiritual prominence among the 12 tribes of Israel. And God prophesied through Jacob on his deathbed that the Messiah would come through Judah. And so Judah is listed here. The sons of Judah were Er or Ur. Onan and Shelah, these three were born to him by the daughter of Shua, the Canaanitess. Ur, the firstborn son of Judah, he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him just like that. But we don't know. We don't know what he did. I'd like to know. I don't know. I would. I need to know what he did, or it'd be in the Bible. Man, it must have been bad because people did a lot of bad stuff that God didn't kill him for. So he was killed, and then uh, Tamar. His daughter-in-law, remember you go back to uh, Genesis uh, uh, 38 or so in there, and uh, uh, Tamar loses her husband, and, uh, and, and uh, 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 here with Ur, and then uh, ultimately Judah loses his wife to death, and, and she takes on the covering of a prostitute. He goes in and he lays with her, and then the sons of that product of that that relationship were twins and uh, and she bore to him Perez and Zara. So again the idea is as he's laying this genealogy out is you got a real messy gene pool. Not everybody's perfect in your gene pool. And and I've had the grace to overrule this in in the intent of bringing the Messiah into the world. So Babylon isn't the end of the world for you. There's all the the history moves on if we'll be faithful. And so there's the listing then of uh, of the descendants of uh, Perez and Zerah. We notice in verse seven the son of Carmi is listed here, and his name was. Achar. We know him as Achan. It's a variation on his name. Achan was the guy that took the Babylonian garment and the silver and all of this uh, as loot from uh, Jericho uh, back in the book of Joshua and uh, brought trouble on all of Israel. Again, God encouraging this trouble and difficulty in your bloodline. But we've we've continued to move forward from that. And then the, there's the listing of the sons of uh, Hezron there uh, that uh, uh, moves on from that. Very significant for us. It's also the sons of Hezron who were born to him were uh, Jeremiel, uh, uh, Ham, uh, Chelubai, uh, Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and the leader of the children of Judah, uh, Nashon begot Salma, Salma begot Boaz. Right at that point, some of us get excited. Wait a second. I know Boaz. So Ruth and Boaz, we've got to be talking about the lineage of David. Well, sure enough, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab, the second, uh, Shimea the third, uh, Nathaniel the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, and David the seventh. And so here is again, this genealogy is narrowing down. 
uh, in even within the tribe of Judah, it's moving down into a family now, the bloodline of David, again, because God had promised to David that the Messiah would come into the world through his bloodline. Now, their sisters, including this, these were also the sisters of David and his his brothers. Their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail, the sons of Zeruiah, were Abishai, Joab and Asahel three. All three of those men are going to become significant members of David's military, uh, his army, during the greatest years in, in Jewish history in the ancient times. And so it's here that we realize that Joab, Abishai, and Asahel were David's nephews. So he's dealing with family things when he's dealing with problems with them as well. Abigail bore uh, Amasa. He later on became the general for uh, Ahithophel and his rebellion against uh, David, but he was also uh, a nephew of David, and the father of Amasa was Jether the Ishmaelite. And then there's the listing of uh, the family of, of Hezron, beginning in verse 8 uh, or verse 18, and, and then uh, we'll skip all the way over to chapter 3. These were the sons. Uh, now, these were the sons of David, again, the focus on David, who were born to him in Hebron. Remember, David ruled for seven years in Hebron before he was recognized as the king of the entire nation of Israel uh, and, and then uh, subsequently ruled in Jerusalem. So while he was in Hebron, uh, he was busy. So he had a lot of sons there that were born to him. The firstborn was uh, Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second was Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess. The third son that was born, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, uh, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of uh, Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah by uh, Abital. The sixth, Ithrim by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. While he reigned in Jerusalem, there were born to him in Jerusalem uh, Shimea, uh, Shobab. I don't know. I don't know what baby book you get that name from. So Nathan, Solomon, and then four were born to him by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And they were Ibhar, Elishama, Elephelata, right, Naga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eli Philet. Nine in all. And these are all the sons of David, besides the sons uh, that were born to concubines and Tamar, their sister. So a total of 15 that were born to his wives. Then it narrows down now into Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Uh, Abijah was his son. Asa, his son. Jehoshaphat, his son. Joram, his son. Ahaziah, his son. Joash, his son. Amaziah, his son. Azariah, his son. Jotham, his son. Ahaz, his son. Hezekiah, his son. Uh, Manasseh, his son. Amnon, his, Ammon, his son. 
and Josiah, his son. And, and so we recognize all of these names from the, the recently going through first and second kings. They represented the kings of Israel in the in the northern, southern kingdom of Judah from Solomon all the way until they went into captivity. So it seems a little boring sometimes when you read them only because our name isn't there. <laughs> What if your name was like in chapter 7? Oh, you'd be so alert. Man, when they hear my name, I just can't wait to hear the reaction. So, but we're not here uh, for the most part in this list. And so these were the sons that were listed on through in verse 16 to Zedekiah. Then he focuses down on the family of Jeconiah in chapter 17. And uh, we don't need to go through those names. In uh, chapter 4, he lists some of the other descendants uh, of Judah from a little different uh, bloodline. And there's no need for us to read that for our purposes tonight, except that when we get to uh, uh, verses 9 and 10, there's like a break in the genealogies. It's like it's amazing if you when you're reading the Bible through the first time and you really are determined to read the whole thing and you're heading through all these genealogy and genealogy and genealogy. And then it's like, whoa, wait a second. This is new. And Jabez. And it's kind of like the Lord's just making his way through this genealogy. The Holy Spirit is. And all of a sudden he gets to Jabez. And it's like he pulls out his wallet and he takes a picture out of Jabez. He says, I've got to tell you a little bit about this guy. So Jabez, we're told, of that lineage of Solomon. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And the word honorable means to be heavy. He was a serious man. He was a spiritual heavyweight so he didn't kind of live down to whatever was. And I hope none of us do this as a Christian. We say, I just want to get like a C minus or a C plus as a Christian in terms of how Christians are conducting themselves in general in the year 2011. Nobody wants to do that. We all want to excel. The Bible's our standard for the life that we want to live, whatever anybody else is doing with their opportunity to live for Christ. So this was a guy that looked and said, listen, I can't answer for everybody else around me what they're doing, what they're not doing. All I know is I want to be what God has called me to be, and I want to live that to the fullest. So he's a spiritual heavyweight, and, and we get to see the marks of, of that uh, spiritual heavyweightedness here. His mother called him Jabez, which literally means he will cause pain. Now, remember, in the ancient world, you were often named after some physical characteristic you were born with. Remember, Esau was born. He was just hairy like a sweater. So they called him Esau, hairy. So if you had like a no, a no I don't know, or an ear out or what, no, tell them what name they put on you. But sometimes you'd be a name for some characteristic of your birth. So evidently, this was a very difficult birth for her. And so she just took it as kind of like a premonition that this guy being born has caused me pain. And she kind of attaches that stigma to him. And this kid's not going to be any good. He's just going to cause pain to everyone he comes into contact in in life. So that's quite a stigma to attach to a child. Think about how many people, I don't know, maybe in this room where you've had a mother or you've had a father, most uh, trusted relationships in life until they're violated, or maybe a teacher that's respected or an uncle or an aunt or someone 
that one day just pulls you up in some dumb thing that you've done and they look you right in the face and they just tell you or maybe they tell you over and over again in your childhood, you're never going to amount to anything. You're not going to be any good. Nobody's going to care about you. No. And that kind of stuff sticks with you. And it takes God to raise us above the indoctrination of even loved ones in our life sometime. And Jabez does that. And so she named him Jabez because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the Lord, uh, on the God of Israel. So he was a man of prayer. And he said, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So he asked God for his blessing. Do you know that's okay? When's the last time you asked God to bless you in a business deal, in the raising of a child, in, in something spiritual, something material, something whatever? The last time we asked, God, would you bless me in this situation? And Jabez did it. God had given promises to the, the children of Israel that if they obeyed God, then God would prosper them and enlarge their sphere of influence, sometimes materially. And he knows he's walking obedient to the Lord. And so he says, and Lord, enlarge my sphere of influence. And then there is in, in the same prayer, the desire that God's hand would be upon him, God's power, God's presence in his life. And he also prayed that God would keep him from evil, that I may not cause pain. God, I don't want to I want to live up to your plan for my life, not what I've been told about me in terms of even my name that's been attached to me, that I'm going to cause pain to everyone all through life. And so his request is a spiritual one. He cares about other people. We, we can ask anything of God. And, and we should feel free to do that. As long as we understand we don't boss them around in prayer. Prayer isn't the means by which I get my will done on earth, even in heaven, even as it's being done on earth. It's not, a, it's not to put a gun to God's head and say, all right, I asked and now you need to give to me because I've asked by faith. God feels perfectly comfortable saying no to any misguided prayers that we might have. But when he does say no, he says no out of his wisdom, his power and his love. He says no only to, because it wouldn't be good for us or he wants to do something better. But the point is, we should be very bold in prayer to the Lord. We should be humble. We should be respectful. But we should ask God to bless our lives for his glory. I pray every day for you in that vein that God will bless you in the workplace, give you favor in the workplace, that he'll bless your relationship with God today and that it'll be rich and, and you'll hear his voice and you'll grow closer to him. That God will bless you in your marriages, bless you in the raising of your children, bless you in your singleness and that crying out for God's blessing. And sometimes we can hit a place in our Christian life where we stop asking with boldness for God's blessing in our life. And James said, sometimes we have not because we ask not. God can have a whole storehouse of blessings for our life. He said, man, I wish that guy had asked for something. We get up into heaven and say, boy, Lord, 
I sure could have used the tractor. I sure could have used the car. I sure could have used this, could have used that. God says, come on, let's go over to the warehouse. In fact, I've got a dozen warehouses for you. They're jam-packed full of stuff I would have given you if you'd have just asked for them. Because if you'd have asked for them and I gave them to you, then you'd know I did it in your life. So that importance. You've got this whole health and wealth doctrine, the positive confession doctrine, and all that makes, you know, uh, our faith the God rather than God our God. And sometimes we can knee-jerk reaction in the other direction and fail to ask him for anything and just say, well, I'll just take whatever he brings into my life. God likes to be asked. All fathers like to be asked because they like to bless and then for their children to know where the blessing came from. And so he takes and he, he lifts up this prayer and God granted to him what he had requested. We get into verse 24 and there's a listing of the sons of Simeon, another one of the tribes of Israel. Get into chapter 5 and uh, verses 1 through 10. The uh, sons of Reuben, verse 11 uh, begins the uh, genealogy of the tribe of Gad. And uh, then in verse 23, there is the genealogy of the half-tribe of Manasseh, which it was to the east on the uh, non-Israel side of that, where they settled. And then in chapter 6, there's the listing of the sons of Levi. And that was one of the tribes of Israel. And they were divided up according to uh, three great sons of Levi. Moses and Aaron came from the tribe of Levi. And so the three great sons were uh, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, as we're told there in chapter 6, verse 1. And then there is the uh, listing, beginning in verse 2, of the sons of uh, Kohath from the time of Aaron to the Babylonian captivity. And uh, then we get there in, into verse 17, and the sons of Gershon, verse 19, the sons of Merari. We notice in verse 22 uh, the name Korah. We remember him all the way uh, back in Numbers chapter 16 when he led that rebellion uh, against Moses and against Aaron and their authority. He was a Levite. Not, not no gene pool is clean. Uh, no matter, even the priestly gene pool. We notice and very significant to notice because he's one of the heroes. Of the Old Testament, we notice the name of uh, one of the great Old Testament prophets, Samuel. And uh, his father is listed here. He was uh, the, the son also of Hannah. Eliab, verse 27, his son. Uh, Jehoram, his son. Elkanah, his son. And the, and the sons of Samuel. Uh, it, it goes in and continues them on. So, again, as you kind of read, the funny thing about genealogies is maybe as Americans, it never becomes like our favorite part of the Bible. But the longer, the more we know about the Bible, the more exciting it is to go through a, a genealogy, relatively speaking, because we begin to recognize names that are old friends. Now, in verse 31, we're told these were the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark had come to rest. And they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order. Now, this is fascinating because David was a musician. He was also a psalmist. The book of Psalms was the Jewish hymnal. 
Those are the worship songs that they sang to the Lord. And so David here, out of his love for the Lord, he only had the tabernacle. His son would build the temple. But he wanted any time anybody came to the tabernacle in the courtyards to worship the Lord, he wanted them to come into contact with praise music that was being played. And so he organized a group of men who were skilled in this area. So when you went to tabernacle or you went to church, so to speak, you never just went into this cold kind of lifeless thing. There was worship music going on. And so in the same way, when you walk into a a church and there's worship music going on in the background, it sets a wonderful tone. It does something good inside of us. And David was way ahead of everybody on all of this. His love for the Lord, his love for worship and his desire to see God's people enter into real deep intimacy uh, with the Lord. We notice in verse thirty nine a name that's significant, uh, the name of Asaph. And so Asaph uh, was famous as a singer uh, in that point in history, also as a psalmist. He wrote Psalm 50 and also Psalms 73 through 83. And then we're told uh, in verse 49, uh, and, uh, but Aaron and his sons, they offered sacrifices on the altar of the burnt offering and on the altar of incense and all the work of the most holy place and to make atonement for Israel, according to all that Moses, the servant of God, had uh, commanded. So Aaron was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. Levites were kind of the deacons of the age. They helped the priests with the sacrifices. You talk about the sacrifices that they would offer and all. If you've ever, today we've got modern equipment, but if you've ever watched a butcher at work, there's a lot of work involved, physical labor. So they would help with with uh, moving things in, moving things out, all this kind of stuff to be a help to the priests. But Levites could not handle the sacrifices themselves. They couldn't offer the sacrifices. That had to be done by Aaron. The priests were descendants of Aaron. And so here is the listing uh, of them. Then in verses 54... Uh, on through to the end of that chapter is a listing of the different cities that were uh, given to the Levites to settle in. You might remember that the Levites, the tribe of Levi, was not given an area of Israel to settle in like all of the other tribes were. And the reason was, is God gave them a bunch of cities uh, located throughout the land because he wanted their spiritual influence not to be concentrated in one part of the land, but to be spread throughout the whole land. And so there's the listing of those cities that were given to them. And then in chapter seven, it, be, it continues the whole uh, the lineage of the different tribes of Israel with the, the sons of uh, Issachar. Uh, verses 1 through 5, beginning in verse 6, there is the uh, sons of Benjamin, and then in verse 13, the sons of Naphtali, and then in verse 14, the descendants of the half-tribe of Manasseh that was in the land of Israel, and then in verse 20, the sons of Ephraim. Man, are we cooking with gas or what? And then in... Uh, Verse 30, the sons of Asher, all the way through the end of the chapter there in verse 40. And then in chapter 8, uh, there is the lineage now given of King Saul, the genealogy of the sons of Benjamin, which leads us then. Uh, Saul was a Benjamite. Saul was the first king of Israel. And uh, 
And so uh, the main focus of the book of First Chronicles is going to be on David. But you can't establish the context of David, who was the second king of Israel and Israel's greatest king uh, next to Jesus, uh, without talking about the first king and why David became the second king. And the first king who failed miserably uh, was King Saul. And so here is the, the uh, in chapter eight in the uh, carrying through of, uh, of this genealogy is to trace the history of of Israel's first king. And we notice that Saul is mentioned there in verse 33. Ner begot Kish, Kish begot Saul, Saul begot Jonathan, and so forth. Some of the names that we recognize as the sons of uh, Saul. And the sons of Ulam, verse 40, uh, were mighty men of valor, archers. They had many sons and grandsons, 150 in all. These were the sons of Benjamin. Benjamin was known for their great, um, uh, great, great skill in battle. Very brave tribe of people uh, could be very, very ruthless, too, uh, when their bravery was misguided. And so that brings us. Um, let's see. No, I'm going to. No, I can do it in a minute or so. Or so. Chapter nine is just an overview of it, uh, because I thought chapter nine was chapter 10, but it's not. Chapter nine is chapter nine. <laughs> chapter nine is really fascinating and it's 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 worthy of, of proper time. Uh, but this will suffice. Basically, chapter nine is a uh, a listing of all of the people that left the Babylon, left Babylon as Jews and came back into the land uh, of of Israel um, uh, to begin now to settle it. We talk about this post exilic uh, population. Uh, these people are really heroes in a lot of ways. By the time the uh, rulers of the ancient world released the Jews and allowed them to return back to Israel, it, you just didn't want to go to Israel. Babylon and, and even, even after its fall and all, all the wealth, the Jews were, had become very, very prosperous in these other nations. Um, they knew the comforts of life. They had positions of prominence in government, all these things. And so then when one of these Gentile kings would say, hey, guess what? I'm going to let you go back to Israel. And, and even as the Jews were uh, taken out of Israel and brought into captivity in three waves, they were allowed to come back into Israel in three waves. Um, first with Zerubbabel in the building of the temple. Fifty-seven years later, uh, Ezra comes in to instruct the Jews in the word of God. Later after that, Nehemiah brings a third group of people in in order to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But these people were leaving a lot to head to this place called Israel that they didn't know anything about and was extremely primitive at that time. A lot of hardship. They did it out of a love for God, a love for their people, a love for the land. And so there's the listing uh, of them here in verses three through nine, a listing of kind of the general population that uh, left in order to to return to the land and the tribes that kind of dominated that. Uh, that, uh, you know, kind of spearhead and going in were Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim and Manasseh. Then there's the listing in verses 10 through 13 
of the priests who were willing to leave uh, the, the softness of this civilization to return to the land and to fulfill God's calling on their life. In verse 14 through 16, a list of the Levites who came along to assist the priest. And then in verses 17, uh, all the way through to, uh, the, uh, the, uh, to, through to verse 27, the listing of the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers were the men who opened up uh, the city in the morning, closed the city in the evening of Jerusalem so that they would be protected from uh, unhealthy intrusion. So these were the guys with the keys. They settled. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They settled into the villages that were clustered around Jerusalem. And then in verses uh, 28 uh, through 34, we have uh, some of the responsibilities of the Levites uh, that are listed in terms of their responsibility for uh, providing manual labor and administration and organization to assist the priests. And then in verses 35 through 40, we have the uh, family lineage of Saul. And that brings us now to the history of Saul. And as we begin chapter 10, Lord willing, next week, we move now from genealogy into narration. So uh, go ahead and take a deep breath. Inhale. Okay, hold it just for a second. Exhale. Wow. We've covered thousands of years of human history and the most important bloodline in human history, the bloodline of our Savior Jesus. And so those nine chapters. Now, some of you um, uh, might not know the Lord tonight and you've walked in in some kind of a daze uh, tonight to come and see what Christians believe. And you're flabbergasted. You can't believe that anyone would miss the Super Bowl to listen to all those names and care about it at all. Here's what you need to take from this tonight. Nobody gets to heaven by attending a Bible study, as wonderful as Bible studies are. It's a lot easier than that. You get to heaven by putting your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And God goes through all of this effort of these genealogies with you in mind, with the knowledge that one day you'd be looking for a savior and the forgiveness of your sins. And you wouldn't know there's so many saviors out there claiming to be saviors, claiming to be the way, claiming to be this, claiming to be that. Who do we know the true savior is? And he records this bloodline so that you can follow right through in his promises and know that the Savior that God has promised from the time of the fall of man in that ancient garden is none other than Jesus himself, and to put your faith in him tonight for the forgiveness of your sins. And there will be men and women up in front immediately after the service. I have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. They'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We thank you, Father, tonight for your word. We thank you how these genealogies, these names, these that evoke so much history reminds us this is a historical book as well as a spiritual book. You entered into human history, orchestrated it in the way that you did in order that, as I've said, that 
day would come when each one of us would be looking for the meaning and the purpose of life and a relationship with you. And how can we have that relationship? And then to know you've been working out our salvation for thousands of years. We give you praise tonight for our Savior, for his bloodline. We give you praise, Father. We give you praise, Jesus, tonight for your willingness to enter into the messiness of this fallen world in order that we might have the life and the hope that we have in you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.